So grab a Bible and open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we're continuing our series through this book. In the last few weeks, as we've gone through it, we've talked a lot about evangelism and the gospel, because that's what Paul's been talking about. Uh, We saw two weeks ago in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 12 and 13, that, that, that there was an open door for the gospel, but internal problems in a church stole Paul's attention away from the opportunity to share the gospel, and that can happen. It does happen throughout churches, throughout history. Internal problems draw our attention inward and keep us from being outward focused like we should. But we also saw that as things stabilize, uh, inwardly as we deal with our internal problems, God calls us outward in mission, and I'm excited that's where we're at as a church, that we are being more outward focused, more called into the mission field of our daily lives, our neighborhoods. So last week then we got some help with expectations. As we go out in evangelism and share the good news with other people, what should we expect And we saw on the one hand, we should expect some people to love it. Some people will love the gospel. They will be like kids at a parade asking for more candy. They'll say, thank you for giving this to us. Thank you. They'll be like people who smell uh, barbecue when you walk into the room, and they just think, this is fantastic. Give me more of that. There's a pleasing aroma of Christ among some. But others, we should expect, will reject the gospel. Not everybody will like it. Some people will be put off by the offense of this message. So as you go and share the gospel, expect some to reject it, expect them to reject you, and that's okay. They're just not ready. It's it's just what happens. And now as we get to chapter 3, we're going to answer the question, what is so great about this gospel? What makes it such good news that we want to go out and share it and tell everyone? And that's what Paul tells us in chapter 3. He tells us that the gospel is great news because it is not just new rules to live by. It's a completely changed life. As Paul goes out to share the gospel, and this is what he talks about in chapter 3, he's he's defending himself. He's saying he's not like all these other religious leaders or philosophers or ethicists who would go around and just tell people, here's a new way to live your life. Follow what I say and live differently. Here's a new set of rules to do, avoid these things, do these things, and then you will have the good life. But that's not the message of the gospel. That's not the message that Paul was proclaiming. It often gets confused with the gospel. I think if you were to ask the wider world, what is the main message of Christianity? What is the essence of it? You might get a list of things from them, things that Christians do or don't do. They say, oh, Christians, yeah, Christianity, Um, yeah, you're the guys who think that you shouldn't have sex outside of marriage, and you shouldn't get drunk, and you should go to church and help the poor, right? That's what Christianity is. People think that Christianity is like other religions, it's primarily a set of rules, things to do and things to avoid. But what we'll see today in chapter 3 is that the message of the gospel is far better than that. That when Paul proclaims the gospel, he doesn't give a set of rules to follow, he invites people to an encounter with the living God. He invites people into a personal and intimate relationship with the Spirit of the living God that radically changes their lives from the inside out. And that's what I want to spend our time talking about this morning, how the Holy Spirit living in you is better than rules for what you should and shouldn't do. We're going to cover all of chapter 3 today, so I'm going to read it. And as I read it, I'd like you to follow along and try to pay attention 
to how many times Paul contrasts the new way of living by the Holy Spirit with the old way of just following the rules or the law of the Old Covenant. Okay, so try to pay attention to this difference. I'm going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. All right, do you see some contrast there? Some, some, how he contrasts the Holy Spirit with, with rules, the, the new way of living the new covenant versus the old covenant? There's a lot of stuff in this chapter. You know that I can spend a whole week on a verse, so it would, we're going to skip some stuff. We're not cover everything. But I want to draw out three big principles about how the Holy Spirit living in you is better than just following rules. Okay, so that's what we're going to do today. Three things, three ways the Holy Spirit living in you is better, better news than just following rules. Okay, so first one, rules only tell you what to do. The Holy Spirit actually changes your life. Rules only tell you what to do, but the Holy Spirit actually changes your life. The background for this whole chapter is the Ten Commandments the greatest set of rules that have ever been devised. Uh, Ten Commandments, you, you find them in Exodus 20. Um, God gives the commands, and you, you know them probably, uh, maybe you can list all of them, but you know, uh, God says, uh, have no other gods before me, don't make for yourself an idol, uh, don't take the Lord's name in vain, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, honor your mother and father, uh, don't murder, don't steal, don't lie, don't commit adultery, and don't covet. I may not have gotten the order right, but that's, that's what they are. Okay, good, good rules given by God. And this is what Paul has in mind as he's talking about this, these rules. He, he mentions in verse 3, 
tablets of stone, right? Verse 3. You have, these rules, you have this, uh, this letter written with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. So you're, you're picturing right now Charlton Heston, right, coming down the mountain as Moses with the two tablets of stone, Ten Commandments. That's what Paul's talking about, the Ten Commandments. Now, I like the Ten Commandments. They're good. They're God-given. Paul liked the Ten Commandments, but even they had limitations. And the first limitation was that all they can do is tell you what you shouldn't do. They only focused on external behavior, how to live. They can't change your heart. They can tell you what you should do, what's right, what's wrong. They can't make you do what's right. They can't make you want to do what's right. And that's a problem. Because... Our big issue is not knowing what's right and wrong. Our big issue as humans is doing what's right instead of what's wrong. The nation of Israel in the Old Testament is a great example of this. So in Exodus chapter 20, God gives uh, the Ten Commandments to the nation from Moses. And then a few chapters later in Exodus 24, the leaders get together with Moses and Aaron and they have this ceremony before God where they hear the commandments and they say to God, yes, we love these laws. We will do them. We want you to be our God. We're going to be your people. We will obey. So Moses goes, Moses goes back up on the mountain. The people get left alone for a little while. And in Exodus 32, you know the story, they go up to Aaron and they say, hey, Moses isn't coming back. Make us an idol to worship direct violation of commandment number two, which they just said will do. And they'll worship the golden calf. They have this debauched party. Now, why would they do that? Why, why would they break the Ten Commandments so blatantly within days of just hearing the commands and agreeing to keep them? Was it a misunderstanding? Was God not clear? Was it, oh, I didn't know that you meant don't make a golden calf when you said don't make an idol. Should have been more specific. No, God was clear. They had the rules. They knew what they should do. They just couldn't keep them. There was something missing in their hearts that made them want to obey. And this story plays out again and again in the Old Testament. In fact, one of the major lessons that we're supposed to learn from the Old Testament, why is the Old Testament there? One of the major lessons we're supposed to learn is that even though they had good laws from God, a perfect set of rules, they couldn't keep them. There's something wrong with the human heart. We need more than just rules. We're not just in need of education. We need transformation. And so God promised the nation of Israel that he would make a new covenant with them. And the new covenant would be different. It wouldn't just be rules written outside on tablets of stone, but it would be rules written on the inside, on their hearts. He would transform their hearts. There's a number of places where he makes these promises. You might want to write these down and check them out later. One of them is Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. God says, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. He's talking about the Ten Commandments. Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Okay? 
not an external set of rules, but now internal, writing it on their hearts. Ezekiel 36, another one, Ezekiel 36, 26. God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Okay, so do you hear what God's saying? He's acknowledging the deficiency of the old system that he only gave rules, but they couldn't keep it because they didn't have the heart transformation. And he's saying, there will be a day when I give you a better covenant in which you get a heart transplant, you get my spirit placed within you, and I will cause you to obey the laws I previously just gave you to obey. And now in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 3, Paul is saying that is what has happened. God has fulfilled that promise. He says, you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. That's the good news. God isn't just telling us what to do anymore. He has written a new covenant through the death and resurrection of Jesus, not one of works where we have to obey and therefore we will live, one of grace, where Christ has obeyed for us. And he gives us his spirit. And the spirit of the living God moves into your very life and writes his laws on your heart and changes you from the inside out so that not only do you know what is right, but now you can actually do it. A trivial, trivial example, uh, maybe help you understand how this works. This is similar to my relationship with vegetables. Okay? So as a kid... I knew I was supposed to eat vegetables. There were rules. Eat your vegetables. And when my mom was watching, I ate my vegetables. But when she wasn't, I drank soda and ate junk food because that's what I wanted. I knew the rules, but I didn't have the heart to obey. But now I'm an adult and I have the freedom to eat whatever I want. And now that I have the freedom to eat whatever I want, I eat vegetables. Why? Because something has changed within me. I have new tastes. I actually like them to a certain degree. And that internal change, that change in taste, has led to a change in behavior that the rule alone could never accomplish. And that's how Christianity really works. God doesn't just give us rules and tell us to keep them and then watch us to make sure that we do. He gives us a new heart, new tastes, new desires. The Spirit of God moves into your life and changes you from the inside out so that formerly the, the rules that felt so burdensome and terrible now become a source of life and joy to you. You don't do it because you're afraid of getting caught. You do it because you want to. The Holy Spirit living in you is better news than just rules you have to follow. Because rules can only tell you what to do, the Spirit changes your life. There's a second deficiency with rules, and we see it as we keep reading. Uh, rules condemn rule breakers, but the Spirit gives them life. Rules condemn rule breakers, but the Spirit gives them life. So rules can be really helpful. They're good up to a point um, until you break them. 
And then rules become the enemy, right? Because once you break a rule, you have to suffer the consequences for what you've done. That's how they work. They set up these really clearly defined areas. This is right. This is wrong. If you do what is right, that's good. If you do what's wrong, you get punished for that. That's the way rules work. That's the way laws work. If you don't obey the law, you become a law breaker and you get punished. That's why Paul says in verse 6 that the, lo- the letter kills. Okay? He says, we're ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills. In verse 9, he describes the Ten Commandments and everything like them as a ministry of condemnation. It's a ministry of condemnation. That's what rules do. Rules have the ministry of condemnation. They perform the service of condemning those who break them. When you break a rule, you're condemned. That's what rules do. And you know what the penalty was for breaking the Ten Commandments? Death. Death. If you broke them, the penalty was death. So rules kill if you break them. And that's a major theme of the Bible as well, that breaking God's law leads to death. Not just physical death, but also spiritual death. In the sense that breaking rules separate us from God and eternal death, that we will be condemned to hell from, uh, from our sins forever because of what God has commanded us to do and our failure to do them. That's what rules get you, condemnation and death. And of course, that doesn't have to happen that way. If you, if you just keep the rules, you don't have any of that, right? It's pretty straightforward. I mean, just, just keep the rules. Just obey God's law and you won't be condemned, you won't be killed. Unfortunately, none of us have done that. And anybody who says differently has not really looked at the Ten Commandments. So what hope do we have? If the letter kills, where do we find life? Well, he tells us, through the Spirit. Verse 6, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Verse 9, the law is the ministry of condemnation, but the Spirit is the ministry of righteousness. So how does that work? Well, there was only one person who ever kept all the rules. Only one person who ever, all the time, always did what was right. And it was Jesus. And so because Jesus always did what was right, he never deserved death. The law didn't condemn him. He had life. His obedience brought life. But instead of taking that life, he took the death that we deserve. He died in our place that we could be freed from that condemnation and get his righteousness. Now, how does that work really? I mean, how can, how can the death of a guy 2,000 years ago mean anything to you or me sitting right here right now? What's well, the Holy Spirit? That, that's how. The Holy Spirit, in a, in a mysterious way that we don't fully understand, the Holy Spirit's job is to take that death of Jesus and that perfect life and apply it to our lives through union with Christ. The Holy Spirit, when you believe in Christ, moves into your life and unites you to Jesus such that what is true about him becomes true about you. That's why Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. What do you mean, Paul? I don't remember seeing you up there on a cross with Jesus. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. By faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit united Paul with Christ so that the death of Christ counted for Paul. He died. In the same way, when you put your faith in Jesus, you are united to Christ by the Spirit so that His death counts for yours, which means the law can't condemn you anymore. That'd be double jeopardy. You've already been punished for that. You already died. You were crucified with Christ. 
You can't be condemned. You're set free by the Spirit. And on the other side, you're given the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus obeyed perfectly. He always did, what, always did what was right. He deserved life, and the Spirit unites you with Christ so that that life of Christ now becomes yours as well. You're no longer a condemned rule breaker, but a righteous child of God. Now, I use this illustration often, so you probably know what's coming, but this is the best one I can think of. When two people get married and they're united in marriage, what's true of the one becomes true of the other. If the wife is deeply in debt before they get married and the husband is crazy rich, when they get married, two things happen. The wife's debt becomes the husband's, and the husband's riches become the wife's. And so this wife, who's deeply in debt, when she gets married, she's not in debt anymore. In fact, all her debts are paid, and she is rich because she's united to a husband who is so wealthy. That's what happened to you and me. When we get married to Jesus, the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ. All of our debts, all of our sins become His, and He pays for them. And all of His righteousness becomes ours. That's what you get from the Holy Spirit. Now, all rules can do. They can't do that. All rules can do is say, you're guilty. You deserve to die. You're condemned. But the Spirit, the Spirit gets you union with Christ and life and righteousness That's why the Holy Spirit living in you is better than rules, because rules only condemn rule breakers, but the Spirit redeems rule breakers, gives us life and righteousness. All right, third reason. This comes in the big chunk in verses 7 through 18. Rules keep God at a distance, but the Spirit brings intimacy. Rules keep God at a distance, but the Spirit brings intimacy. Now, to understand the rest of the chapter and to understand this point, you have to know an Old Testament story. So in the same section of the Bible we've been referencing in Exodus, after all this Ten Commandments stuff, uh, Moses came down, the people were worshiping idols, Moses was angry with them, God was angry with them, and so Moses pleaded with God, give them a second chance. And God granted that second chance. So Moses went back up the mountain, got a second set of tablets because he broke the first ones when he was when he saw the, the, their idol-worshiping party, he was so angry. So he goes back up the mountain, he gets a second set of tablets, and when he does that, he asks God, show me your glory. And God gives Moses a vision of his glory. And that vision had a profound effect on Moses. It literally made his face shine. The glory of God that Moses saw was so strong that it reflected in the face of Moses like a little sun, and he's just walking around glowing. So Moses comes down the mountain, and the people of Israel freak out. They say, what is going on? This glory is so bright, it's so scary. Even the reflected glory in the face of Moses is so scary. They say, cover that up. We don't want to see that. We, we can't handle that. We don't want that. So Moses put on a veil. He wore a veil in front of his face. So that the people would not be exposed to the glory of God. They would keep their distance. Now, Moses wasn't content with that, so Moses, after he did this, he would continually go into the tent of meeting to meet with God face to face. And when he did that, he would take the veil off, and he would commune with God, and he'd get a fresh charge of glory. He'd come back out, his face would be shining in, people would freak out, he'd put the veil on to keep the distance between them and God. That's the story behind 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So Paul picks that story up, and he makes a point that that same sort of veiling 
keeping our distance between us and God is happening today through the law, through the rules that we follow. So first, in verse 7, he affirms that the Old Testament had, law had a certain glory to it. It says in verse 7, Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which is being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Okay, so he says, he's saying the Ten Commandments weren't bad. Yeah, they were ministry of death, but boy, they had glory. There was glory. There was a glory that came from God. It was reflected glory. And if that ministry had glory, how much more the ministry of the Spirit? But the problem was that even that first glory was, was too scary. It was too intimidating. People didn't want it. They didn't want to have God's glory in their face. They wanted some distance. Keep that away. That's too intense. They wanted the veil. I said, Moses, Moses, you, you have a relationship with God. You have intimacy with God. You talk to God. But when it comes to us, we want a veil. We don't want direct access to God. Keep him comfortably away. So that's what Moses did. He put on a veil, and he lived with a relationship with God. He lived with intimacy with God, but the people lived with God at a distance. And Paul argues that this is a picture of how people still use religious rules as a substitute for a real relationship with God. That we can use rules as a means to keep God at a distance. Rather than drawing close to God, we use them to keep him away. So in verse 14, he says, Their minds were hardened, for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. So he's saying that story in the Old Testament is a picture of even in Paul's day and in our day how people still have a veil between them and God. It says, when the law is read, the veil remains. I think what he's saying is that the, we can use religious rules as a means to keep God away from us, which seems weird. You think, why, why, would, I, why would I keep rules from God in order to keep God away? And yet that is a very real response that some people have. Right? We, we see God in His glory. We, we have a sense that, that God is this glorious, sovereign being who, who is very powerful, untamed. He's a glorious being. And we look at ourselves and our lives and we say, I don't know if I want Him messing with me. That glory is too big. It's too powerful, too scary. I would prefer if someone else would deal with Him and I could keep Him somehow at arm's distance. I need to protect myself, have a veil between me and God. I can't, have, I can't have God in my life. And so how do we do that? How do you keep God at arm's distance? Well, you, you treat him like a bill collector, right? You don't invite the bill collector into your house for dinner. You ask the question, what is the minimum payment I have to make so that you will stay away and not mess with my life? Okay, what's the minimum payment? What do I have to do to make sure that you stay safely away and don't come mess with my life, and we can treat God like that. We say, God, you're, you're, he's so great, he's so glorious, I'm not sure what would happen if he really came into my life in a profound way. I want to keep him away. How do I do that? Religious rules. What is the minimum payment I have to do to make sure that God will be appeased and stay away and not really come in and mess with my life? 
It's the very law that's meant to show us God and bring, him into, bring us into his presence becomes a means by which we keep him away, keep him at arm's distance. Say, God, you can't mess with me. I'm doing what you want me to do. I'm keeping your rules. I'm, I'm crossing the T's. I'm dotting the I's. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. So you have no right to come mess with my life. We keep him at arm's distance. And in fact, if you want a comfortable life, that's probably the best route to pursue. If you just want enough God in your life so he's there to help you out when you get sick or when you lose your job or if you need to pray to ask that your kids turn out okay, then just focus on following the rules and God will remain safely at a distance. But that is not what Christianity is about. Christianity is not about keeping God at arm's length where he can't mess with your life. It's the true gospel is about intimacy with God. Look at verse 17. He says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. Christianity is about knowing God. It's about the veil being taken away. It's about no longer just Moses getting to be with God and being transformed by that, but now all of us, by the Spirit of God, get access to God. It's about knowing God intimately better than you know your closest friend. It's about being known by God deeply, more more intimately than you're known by your siblings or your spouse. When the Holy Spirit moves into your life, He tears down that veil. There is no barrier between you and God anymore, and you are face to face with Him in His glory. And that's good news. Because the Holy Spirit transforms our experience of God from a distant, condemning, scary figure to a loving Father who now has a real relationship with you, which means you can experience His presence without fear. You can know Him deeply, personally, intimately, like Moses did, because the Holy Spirit lives in you. And that's why the Holy Spirit living in you is better than any set of rules, because rules keep God at a distance. But by the Spirit, you get intimacy with Him. Now, I'm going to take what may seem like a left turn, but I think this, this, this is an appropriate application. Okay, so let's think about this. Rules. Rules have limitations. Um, you know, rules can't actually make us obey. Rules bring condemnation. Rules can actually be used to keep God at a distance. So, as we think about this calling that God has placed on us to share the gospel with people, what is the application? Well, the application is when you share the gospel, make sure that you're sharing the gospel and not rules. As you go out into the world and tell people about Jesus and, and, and being a Christian, you invite people to join in this, this project of following Jesus together, make sure that what you're actually inviting them to is a relationship with the Holy Spirit and not just to another set of ethical norms that they have to keep. I mean, I get it. I live in the same world that you do. I know that the culture is hostile in many ways to Christianity. It's, it's becoming more hostile. You scratch your head sometimes. You say, people aren't even pretending anymore that the Ten Commandments are good. Right? You're kind of weird for thinking that the Ten Commandments are good. And so there's this tension, this pressure within to, 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 to just go out and tell people, no, no, that's not right. 
here's what's right and here's what's wrong, and to get really hung up on morality and rules. We think that our mission is to get people to live right, to agree with us at what is right and what is wrong. But I hope you see that if we try to do that, if we make the rules the priority, then we will fail because rules are powerless. In fact, rules are part of the problem. Because even if we can get people to agree with us on issues of morality, you're going to get one of three responses. Uh, One, they're going to agree with you about what is right and wrong, but they won't be able to do it because they lack the power of the Spirit. Or they're going to agree with you about what's right and wrong, and they're going to feel condemned because they know that they're rule breakers and they don't know where to find life. Or three, they're going to agree with you that the rules are good, and then they're going to use them to keep God at bay. They're going to turn them into an instrument to make God farther away instead of drawing near to Him, and we don't want that either. What we want is for people to believe the gospel and be set free by the Spirit. We want people to have transformed lives. We want people to know the, the, the freedom and righteousness that comes from Christ through the Spirit, not to be condemned. We want people decent, moral people to realize that they're still separated from God. And we want them to wake up to a real, intimate relationship with Him. How does that happen? By us articulating very clearly what the Christian ethics are about various issues? No. It happens when we share the true message of the gospel. That Jesus died and rose from the dead so that you can receive a new heart, freedom from condemnation, and intimacy with God by the miracle of the Holy Spirit living in you. That's the good news. That's the ministry that we have. So believe it and share it. Let's pray. Father, I'm humbled to be a vessel, I hope, a vessel of your Spirit. Please do your work of transforming our hearts, my heart, our hearts, of convicting us of sin and then taking us to Jesus and giving us that righteousness. And please give us ever-increasing experiences of real intimacy with you. And I pray that that truth at work in our lives would overflow, that we would share it with others, and they would believe as well. In Jesus' name, amen.